Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is podcast episode 83 and videocast episode 93 for the week ending July 30th, 2021. We've got a lot of great stuff to cover today. Uh, We'll start with the media, then we'll get down to the meat and potatoes. Uh, First, I'd like to thank Ellie Terrett and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown this afternoon. And the subject was, um, you know, basically, what is your sector that you want to be focused on for August and September and top picks? And then she also threw in a question early on um, off the cuff about uh, any expected gray swans in the market uh, in in the next month or two months. And and, uh, I addressed that. Uh, twofold. First off, obviously the Delta variant, everyone is focused on that, uh, if that accelerates. But I think that's actually going to be a net positive because effectively what it's going to do is get everyone who either hasn't uh, built antibodies or hasn't been vaccinated uh, some level of exposure. Uh, Obviously, you don't want to see anyone get sick uh, for sure, but it will likely lead us much closer to herd immunity. And why do I say that? is because of um, you basically have UK and India that came before us and it looks like their Delta variant peaked within 45 to 50 days. We're going to look at a couple charts from that. And the second gray swan, again, low probability event is an Iran deal gets done in the next 30 to 45 days, puts a bunch of oil on the market in the short term, and that would rattle the credit markets because uh, a lot of a lot of debt is uh, energy. And if prices go down, people worry about their ability to repay. Uh, again, low probability, but she asked a question, so I gave the answer. And um, But I did say that we wanted to get a little defensive here. While we're very optimistic, uh, earnings estimates went up this week big time, as we'd been anticipating. Uh, they went to from 213.50 to 217 for 2022. Uh, <clears throat> so while we're generally positive, we want to uh, get a bit defensive and uh, to help us ride through the chop. Healthcare tends to uh, outperform this time of year. And uh, we put three picks. One's a brand new pick, which is Cigna. Uh, we're buying this pullback. It's off 15% off its highs. We think it can be at new highs by the end of the year. Trading at 9, 9.8 times next year's earnings. Its average multiple for the last 15 years is about 12 times earnings. Its ever North Pharmacy Services business was up 13% last quarter. Their health insurance business was up 5% on increased premiums. And it pays a 1.7% dividend yield um, uh, while you wait, which is significantly higher than the 10-year yield, which I think closed around 123 basis points, and it reports on Tuesday. So we like that. Uh, And then the second two picks that I covered were picks that we had given on her show um, uh, at much lower prices. So Novartis, we suggested originally in the mid-80s on the show, and that's trading at 13.95 times next year's earnings compared to their historic multiple of 22 times. They crushed it this quarter. Their EPS came in uh, 166 versus 156, up 22% year on year. Their revenues were up 14% year on year. And if you remember, I've been pounding the drum. When people go back to the doctors, the business is going to fly. And that's happening to the stock now. And we think this can push even higher. Uh, and then uh, their innovative medicines grew 15%. That's the Entresto we've talked about. That's the heart failure drug. And the Cosentix, the uh, psoriasis and psoriatic, psoriatic arthritis medicine. And uh, that pays a 3.37% dividend yield while you wait, which is valuable in the low rate environment. And then finally is Pfizer. And uh, we suggested that in the low to mid 30s on our show. Uh, It's trading at 12 and a half times next year's earnings. This compares to its historic multiple of 15 times. Uh, Its earnings were up 72% year on year. They totally crushed it. Uh, Revenues were up 92.4. Half of this revenue was vaccine sales. Boosters are coming now as efficacy wanes. They're finding that the efficacy drops to, I think, 83% after four months. Uh, So Israel's already starting with people over 60 and management has said as much, they see this as a durable revenue stream like the flu shot. So that's, I think, in their mind, is going to be a regular annual occurrence for new variants. And um, and if that's the case, this thing is 
extremely cheap. If it's not the case, you look at their non-vaccine business, it's up 10% on uh, operational revenue growth. So that was a nice beat. Again, people going back to the doctors. They also raised guidance 10% on the top and the bottom line uh, and, uh, and expect to do 33 billion of vaccines this year alone. Uh, and uh, again, another big dividend yield to, to get paid while you wait. So uh, all of that is positive. Um, and uh, so, so, so that was really the name of the game is get, get some exposure to defensive stocks. Uh, yeah, there might be some black swans, but you still have the liquidity. You still have earnings going up huge this week. That was a big upward revision and, uh, and right in line with expectations. So thanks again to Ellie and Liz. Moving right along, this is, um, yeah, Pfizer says immunity can drop 83% within four months, people who get the COVID shot. Uh, these are the drug stocks that we've been talking about. So they are really starting to do exactly what we were uh, anticipating. Uh, here's Novartis. It's making this huge cup. Here's the handle for all you breakout people. And uh, we think this has got some upside to, uh, you know, over 100. I think it's going to break out to new highs, 1.5, 110. Uh, and then revisit it at, at that time uh, in terms of whether we want to take some off. Same with Pfizer. Look at this. It's doing exactly what we anticipated um, and a, a similar pattern, only it's a little farther along than Novartis. Uh, we think this has a little more gas in the tank. And then, um, you know, all of these are starting to move in line with what we had talked about in um, late February, early March, and, and, they're, and they're moving. Uh, one side thing is uh, Teva, which we talked about a few weeks ago on uh, the Claim and Countdown when it was beaten down. Uh, it shot up this week because the CEO, Kari Schultz, came out and said that uh, on the earnings call that he believed they could get the opioid lawsuits uh, done within the next 12 months. Uh, so that's something to keep an eye on uh, for more reasons than one. The generic story with the current administration, it's just been beat down. It's down like 90% from its all-time high. Uh, still have some some proprietary drugs. It's the biggest generic producer. Those are going to become more and more in demand. So that was nice to see, and nice to see the stock re respond. Procter and Gamble. We've talked about this. You know, everyone was worried about cost. The stock uh, faces cost headwinds, but guess what? They're passing it through to clients. So the stock was up big today after reporting earnings on increased costs and increased revenue because they passed it right through to the client. So we're getting that lag. You're going to start to see it more and more in the consumer staples group as we've been anticipating and as earnings go on and on. So that's good to see. Want to thank Alexander Osipovich and Will Horner for including their, me in their article in the Wall Street Journal this week. This was after the Fed meeting. And um, uh, my quote was, I don't think he could have been more dovish, <laughs> said Tom Hayes of uh, chairman of Great Hill Capital. There's nothing that the Fed could do that would be more accommodative to the stock market. So uh, basically, Chair Powell w was um, aggressively dovish. And now with the Delta variant, he certainly looks like a hero uh, in that regard. In the short term, we'll see long term with, with inflation. But he said that uh, he said, you know, a couple key quotes that stood out. Number one, he re-emphasized symmetric inflation. He wants to be above 2% for at least the amount of time that we've been below 2%, which is quite a long time, many, many years. Uh, my guess is he'll change that tune as wage inflation starts to, to kick in materially, which we saw some hints of that this week. We'll see more clearly at the jobs report. But as I said on the claim and countdown, his bet, Powell's bet is that a, a ton of labor supply will come on the market after uh, after the unemployment extended unemployment benefits roll off in September, and then we'll get a real read in October or November whether uh, these wages are going to be sticky. The other thing that he said, which most people I don't think interpret the concept of transitory as, he said, with transitory inflation, we're not talking about like lumber that, you know, shot up and now has collapsed uh, back below its earlier in the year prices. He's saying that uh, he's thinking about transitory as prices are going up in the short term and then they'll stop going up, but not that they'll go down, which was a new take on it. He thinks we're just going to have a higher new level, which would be consistent with printing $4 trillion. That money doesn't go away. And if you have a low default rate, you're not getting any contraction in money supply. 
So his bet is, yeah, prices are going up, but then they're going to level off, uh, not go back down is, is kind of the way he was putting it. And I think that that's a little more reasonable way to think about it. We'll see if he gets that lucky. Um, but um, that was that was new. Uh, what his commitment was is that it doesn't affect longer term inflation expectations because that's when things get out of control. And you have that wage price spiral, which he talked about during the press conference. Um, and he thinks that, you know, price, you know, Inflation is going up faster. He thinks it's going to level off. Maybe that'll be a function of the labor supply. Maybe that'll be a function of the workout of supply chain uh, or a combination thereof. But he needs substantial further progress. He also, again, said, basically said, full employment is our uh, is our commitment. He wants to make sure that anyone who wants a job can get a job. 9.3 million unemployed versus 5.7 before the pandemic. And I joked when Alex called, he said, what was your takeaway from the press conference? I said, my takeaway, it was everyone will have a job even if no one can afford to pay their rent. <laughs> I, I mean, partially in jazz. Look, we all hope that Chair Powell is right, but we also know that he has the tools and uh, he'll be able to act. The fear that people have is, does he get behind the curve? And I think, you know, I, I think I think it's likely that after this initial price increase, I think the rate of change will obviously slow. But um, if we ran closer to 3% for a little bit of time, I don't think it would be the end of the world. As long as, to his point, those long-term expectations don't keep ratcheting up, then, then we have a problem. Then he has to act too quickly. Uh, and, um, but but, but I, I, don't, I don't think the conditions are there that will lead to that that spiral that everyone's thinking is the 70s. We're in completely different demographic uh, timing and um, te- technological timing and, and different things. But uh, it was excessively uh, dovish. He also said, uh, still, as, as it relates to rates, the rest was regarding taper, still a ways away from even considering raising rates. Uh, we're not at or near liftoff on taper. And... Um, and that's that. So uh, that was helpful. Thanks again to Alex and Will. Let's move over to TD Ameritrade Network. I uh, was really glad to be on uh, the show earlier this week on Tuesday. Oliver Rennick, uh, thanks for having me, was the host. And Alexandra Hinks for inviting me on was the producer. Um, so in this segment, we were talking about tech earnings. I, uh, the night before, Apple... Google, Microsoft, and AMD had reported. And, uh, you know, my my starting statement, which he seemed to like, was, um, you know, these stocks were all priced for perfection. Uh, the bad news is they were all priced for perfection. The good news is they got perfection and then some. So is it is it a case of buy the rumor, sell the news? Uh, we're, you know, it remains to see, be seen. I think it's nuanced. In the case of Apple, people were, were worried about, while their revenue and their EPS were up 36% and 100% respectively, they returned 20, $29 billion to shareholders. iPhone sales up 50%, services up 32.9%. Uh, they warned on silicone and namely, as obviously as it relates to chips. And um, so they were worried about supply concerns. Uh, the analyst community is worried that their iPhone sales are going to slow meaningfully next year. So that's kind of a short-term headwind. And as I mentioned, we're bumping up against the law of large numbers, despite uh, Tim Cook talking about the global penetration rate is still low. You know, it's a two and a half trillion dollar company. Maybe it could push to three trillion, be more likely it pulls back some uh, and then reloads before making that next run. Uh, They offered no guidance. And the big overhang that I've been talking about that people don't seem focused on is you've got the lawsuits in um, in Europe with Spotify, in the U.S. with the U.S. Uh, uh, regulators, and with with the video game maker, and then you've got regulators around the world saying, why does Apple deserve a thirty percent vig on every single app? What value add do they provide? Um, you know, uh, and, and the answer is to be determined, but. If that was to get impaired uh, by any stretch, the growth story evaporates. So that's an important thing. 
earnings were great. Uh, same thing with Google, revenues up 34%, earnings up 166%. Um, search was up 30%, YouTube ads was up 48%, cloud was up 45%, and cloud also for Microsoft was up uh, 50, 51%, Azure was up. Uh, again, just strong across the board. The question is, is you know, rate of growth is obviously going to slow and the market's starting to sniff that out and we're in that period, period of the year. Um, and then we talked again about Delta, we, which we talked about with Liz, and we talked about um, obviously the beat rate, 88% of companies, better on earnings and revenues. But the most important thing is that I said that uh, while estimates were 13.5, 213.5 for 2022, when I was on with him, I said they're going to go up towards 20, 225, 230 in the next couple of months. That's going to make the market look a lot reasonable. And sure enough, the new numbers were out today. It's already up to 217. So we jumped almost $4 this week. And I think that's going to continue to climb. So while in the short term, maybe we get a little ch seasonal chop. Uh, that's why we've, we've added some defensives. Um, you know, in the intermediate term, uh, those earnings go up and it starts to make the market look more reasonable. So thanks to Ale uh, Oliver and Alex for having me on TD Ameritrade Network. Then I want to just thank Shriashi Senyal and Susan Matthew for having me. Uh, in their Reuters article regarding the Fed, it was very much in line with expectations. No rate raise, no talk about, and no talking about tapering. Uh, the Fed holding rates steady should keep the dollar sub subdued, which is helpful for Latin American currencies, which they wanted me to comment on because they, they were trying to target that with their uh, article. So definitely uh, thank you to Sriyashi and Susan. And then today, this morning, I want to thank Sajarika Jazingani, uh, Sajarika Jazingani for having me in her Reuters article. Uh, and my quote just before the you know futures were down a bit, I said people were obviously worried last night with Amazon missing on the top line estimates, uh, but spending is still there. It's just transferred from spending online to more experiential services, services and, and also uh, retail. I think, you know, some of the, the players like Dollar Tree, I think is going to be really, really interesting. Uh, and some of the other in-person retailers, I think are going to be opportunities here now that you're seeing people getting, changing their habits a bit. Uh, obviously, long-term Amazon's a home run, but short-term, uh, that's that. And then I said, it shows customers are spending their money and not hoarding it as they would do if they were worried about economic prospects. So personal spending was up today. That was a response to that. Uh, so thank you again to uh, Sagarika. Um, okay, now question of the week, ask me anything, comes from Ben first name only. Uh, hey Tom, podcast question please. At what price do you see XLF bottoming before it resumes its uptrend? Same question regarding IYR. XLF is the financials ETF. IYR is the REIT ETF. So this is IYR. Um, <clears throat> I think I think this thing is extended. I think it's run. I mean, would I be aggressively short here? No. Uh, would I be adding exposure here? Absolutely not. Um, but if we got down into this nine, you know, eighty-seven to ninety-two range, I'd be loading probably buying a lot. I don't know if we even get there, but you know this thing is run. It's not my cup of tea, um, uh, but that that's where I would be adding it if it gets to that level. It may it may not, and I'm perfectly okay with with uh, not being involved. As far as financials, I, you know, I gen first off both with REITs and with financials, I, I don't like to buy the ETF if I can help it. Uh, if I have to get exposure quickly for some reason, or it's a placeholder for cash or something, I'll, sometimes I'll be in e ETFs. But, um, you know, with XLF, you know, I think this is just going to grind higher slowly and surely over time. So we did have this big correction that we had anticipated in June, little retest in July. Does it go straight up? I, I don't know. I think it grinds, you know, slowly up and then we get some acceleration towards the back half when uh, taper talks become taper execution becomes more imminent and, and that 10 year. All you have to do is watch the 10 year yield. If that starts to go up, start to get more exposure to financials. What's cheap here? I mean, you know, look, we were getting all of our financial exposure back here. So to say, hey, load the boat up here when they're up 100%, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. If I had to put new money to work today in financials, I'd buy City. City's the cheapest on a relative basis. 
Uh, it's still a relative bargain. And if you look three to five years out, I think it's got a huge upside. As far as the others, I think they're all going to push higher. Do I know do, do, do I know if this goes to 33 before it goes to 50? I, I don't know. But uh, I, I think it's pretty safe bet to, to buy City on any weaknesses up here. If the others pull back materially, I'd add more. I, I just don't know if you're going to get it. This was when we were talking about financials, not now. Uh, that's when you put the positions on. And then, you know, as we move up, to 45, 50, 55, 60, that, you know, you start to peel more and more as we peeled some in the beginning of June. So um, the only thing that's attractive for new money in, in my humble opinion is, again, this opinion, not advice, go to hedgefundtips.com, click on terms, but uh, would be city for new money. Uh, Boeing crushed it. Uh, beat, and we, we talked about that in recent weeks on the claim and countdown uh, as an idea, multi-year inflection point to upside they're free. They uh, were prop, uh, positive cash flow first time since 2018, I think it was, or wh- what was the story? Uh, or anyway, the point is, you know, they're running on all cylinders. They're waiting for China approval on the 737 Max. China needs it as much as Boeing needs it. So it's just a question of the administration's getting together, and then you'll have the next leg higher, and that could be, you know, sooner than later. I mean, both. Sides need something from each other, and uh, that's usually a formula to get together and get something done. Um, okay, mortgage refinances spike as 15-year fixed rate hits its lowest price since 1990. Um, refinances were at their highest level since uh, February, I think. You know, we talked about that basket of lending deep uh, Loan Depot, uh, United Wholesale Mortgage Corp, and... Um, Lending Depot and uh, Rocket Mortgages. Um, I think those are going to report well. You saw kind of a derivative of that. Lending Club crushed it. They do small loans, small personal loans, uh, and their stock was up 49% after earnings in one day. Uh, I think that uh, this environment is going to start to effectuate what we've been anticipating for that group that was hated when rates were going up. And then they were saying, uh, you know, they're never going to match last year's volumes. But um, the, that was predicated on a view that rates are going to go straight up and refinancings are done. And I think that is a premature viewpoint. So um, uh, that, that's an update on that front. Uh, George Soros quote I thought was appropriate. We try to catch new trends early and in later stages we try to catch trend reversals. Therefore, we tend to stabilize rather than destabilize the market. We're not doing this as a public service. It is our style of making money. So effectively what he's saying is he buys low and sells high and shorts what's high and, and uh, buys it back low. And uh, and that's kind of our style. I know there's a lot of people out there that like to buy you know new highs and that type of thing. It's a completely different strategy. But um, you know that, that's what we focus on. Now I want to drill it down a little bit into China. I know we spent a lot of that in recent weeks, but it's been a... a, a volatile environment to, to put it mildly. And I think we've we finally hit the inflection that we were looking for. Uh, like some of these uh, charts that came out in the last couple of days, macro charts put this out. Uh, historic collapse in Chinese equities, traders are dumping everything, fearing nothing is safe. Among the rubble, some of the best stocks of all time near their most extreme oversold levels ever. All other panics led to career making rallies. Is this time different? So this is showing the most extreme oversold as it relates to RSI. This is 10 cent, but you could overlay it with the Chinese index. You could overlay it with Baba. You could overlay it with Baidu, any of the big uh, major Chinese companies. And every time you got this oversold level, they just ripped higher, ripped higher, ripped higher. And I think that's where we are now. And we're going to spend a bunch of time on that in the article this week. And, uh, you know, it was a week of turning lemons into lemonade. And I think it's going to prove to be... uh, um, you know, potentially orders of magnitude greater than, uh, you know, even being able to buy energy in banks last year in the middle of things and seeing those just uh, just fly. Uh, Chris Verone here puts capitulative highest volume day in history for K-Web. That's the China Web ETF, China Internet Web ETF. <clears throat> Get me out at any price. Often the attitude found near the end of a drawdown. So same type of concept. So this uh, macro charts was talking about relative strength was at its lowest. Uh, Chris Verone is talking about daily volume at its highest. Pure capitulation. Everyone was puking. And then uh, Carter Braxton Worth 
at Renaissance. He um, he put these out. Uh, so he's doing, I guess this is a head and shoulders top, and he's basically saying that usually it's a measured move from here to here, that they kind of hit that, uh, leaving the ETF as oversold as any time in history. Again, this is K-Web. Uh, next was uh, the long-term trend line. So it's back to trend, and then it bounces off trend and then uh, reverses. Uh, and then he had another chart that showed, um, okay, 39%. Okay, plotted with its 150-day moving average. Percentage K-Web is trading uh, below above and below its 150-day moving average. So it traded 40%, below, 39% below its 150-day moving average. And you can see when it gets into that neighborhood, it reverses, it reverses. And he was using all these to show that it's oversold. And um, I'm sorry, he's not at Renaissance Macro. Chief Market Technician at Cornerstone Macro. Uh, it's a research shop. So uh, great charts there. We agree. We put out Charlie Munger's holdings this weekend. If it's good enough to be his uh, one of his top positions, you see here 17.59% uh, of his portfolio is still good enough for me. Uh, and then things changed midweek. They, you know, the Chinese government panicked. They self-inflicted wound. And, you know, it's funny. I was thinking this morning, I said, why the hell? Like, it was so obvious what was going to happen if they continued down that road and they took it one step too far. And it almost fell off the rails on Tuesday uh, completely, in which case they would never be able to raise capital ever again in, uh, in, in the most robust capital markets in the world. It would be mass unemployment. It would be a government overthrow. And they would be, you know, just left for dead in terms of economic hegemony, global economic hegemony. And that's basically what happened. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden overnight, China regulator says it's going to still allow IPOs in the United States. Then um, the next article was China State Media seeks to calm investor nerves after stock route. So, you know, the government came out and said, you, you know, we're, we're at a bottom. You can start to buy stocks now. And they had their uh, banks on a conference call, just like we did after the in the pandemic last March when we backstopped corporate credit markets and everything turned around. Well, they um, they had their bankers on and they started going in the market and buying. And I thought laughingly this morning, I was like, you know, that the Chinese government wants control, like who would be so stupid to destroy their own companies the way that they, they effectively did? And I thought to myself, the only reason someone would ever do that is I wonder if they used the sell-off to take a huge position in Alibaba. <laughs> I mean, I guess we'll find out from the ownership disclosure, but my goodness, um, that, that, would, that would actually make a lot of sense if they used the, the big sell-off to, to take you know, 20, 30 percent stakes as the Americans were puke and the foreigners were puking out their shares as fast as they could. Were the Chinese buying in at the lows to get a long term major holding uh, in these companies? And the answer is I don't have the answer that I, I don't know yet. But that that's the only reason that would justify them taking it really right up to the edge of destroying their company country for decades to come. Uh, and um, and that would be interesting, though, if they became like, you know, 20 percent holders in these major companies. Um, but long, long story short, they blinked and it's in their interest. It's in the world's interest. And then this week, China orders 25. Uh, this came out actually today. 20 orders, 25 tech giants to fix their wrath of problems over the next six months. So so the good news is where you couldn't quantify the magnitude of the regulation and the crackdown now we're seeing, okay, they're now saying you have to do all these things within six months. And once the market can quantify it, it starts to look through it. And that's when you get the rebounds. And that's when things go off to the races. So now we're getting communication, we're getting directives, we're getting quantification, and we can move forward. Before we were just getting a lot of crazy ideas, and no one knew where the bottom was, and no one knew what was the next capricious mercurial decision that was going to be made that could uh, just royal uh, global capital markets. So, um, or, yeah, so um, so it seems like now they realize they took it too far. They're back. They're backing it up. Um, and then this this is what it all came down to. It started with the education stocks because they thought 
that their economic problems were related to people's having to spend too much on tutors so they weren't going to have babies. And here's the government uh, coming out. First Chinese city doles out cash subsidies to encourage births. So they're trying to encourage births. And the way to encourage births is show people that there's a promising future to live into and that China has some of the best tech enterprises in the world. And if they have babies, their babies will have high paid productive jobs uh, in growing industries. And China is a leader in those industries versus choking off access to global capital markets, have massive unemployment uh, and, uh, and upheaval and, and just handing the baton for U.S. tech to rule the world, which, you know, uh, was the case for a long time. Uh, Europe has never stepped up, never had any tech innovation because they've regulated themselves out of existence. And China was playing huge catch up uh, and breathing down um, Silicon Valley's neck with innovation, scale, uh, everything that you could ask for, which which uh, set China as a, as a leader. And the irony is that those were the companies that they chose to choke off. I think they've come to the error of their ways, just as they had when I suggested six to nine months ago on CGTN America that they were um, tightening policy too soon. They reversed on that um, uh, just the, in the past week by reducing reserve requirements. So that's a positive thing. And now they're reversing on this horribly um, uh, aggressive stance towards their uh, champion companies. And uh, and now it looks like things can uh, start to settle and then uh, rebuild. But the patient has just had a heart attack. It's going to take more than a day <laughs> to get it off the bed and send it back home and, and up to new highs uh, over time. So very good to see that. This was the downward wedge that we talked about last week, and it broke through this. So it did what they call a wedge overthrow, but it looks like it's going to creep back up. It did for a minute. But this is normally how, you know, after a heart attack, you got to build a little of this and let's see if it gets back in this wedge and if it can break out and start to hit our target uh, over the next, you know, uh, months and, you know, plus, uh, you know, start to move up to its intrinsic value, which, as we've said over and over with our thesis, you know, trading at same price as three years ago, but the business is double, double the revenues, double the cash flow per share, double the earnings per share, and still growing and still a behemoth that's going to continue to grow. So uh, all of these things look positive. We'll keep our eye on it and we'll tell you how we dealt with it because I think that's more valuable than you know just a general thesis of I like the stock. How do you deal in the midst of that turmoil when you wake up on Tuesday morning and the Shanghai is down another 8%? Uh, so we're going to get into that in a second. Want to cover this. This is the India and UK Delta variant surge, as you can see, uh, by Carl, Kint Carl Quintanilla forwarded Fundstrat, Tom Lee stuff. Um, you know, it exploded from within 50 days, it peaked and it rolled over. My guess is they hit a, an element of herd immunity. That's why it rolled over. Uh, same thing in the UK, looks like 45 days and it's rolling over. So let's hope that this holds to be the case in the US as well, where we're basically at herd immunity and there are no, no more hosts. That that would be a terrific thing. This is what the chart looks like. You know, rightfully so. People are a little bit concerned here. We had that type of spike in, in March as well. Uh, so we'll see how that carries out. You also have to keep in mind it's summer. Everyone's getting together. Um, so let's let's just see if this rolls over again like it did in March. And um, uh, the, so the bad news is the cases have gone up short term like they did in UK and India. Good news is we hope they'll roll over quickly. And then the deaths per day have still still stayed meaningfully subdued because as these viruses mutate, they become more transmissible but less virulent, and uh, and that's a good thing. So um, and it looks like Pfizer wants to be involved with um, providing like what will be the annual flu shot. I guess the annual variant shot. Will they guess what what variant is going to be this year and that type of thing? Um, okay, the Chris Stapleton stock market and sentiment results. We wrote this on Wednesday night, um, and we used lyrics from his theme song, Starting Over, uh, and it says, but nobody wins afraid of losing, and the hard roads, hard roads are the ones worth choosing. Someday we'll look back and smile and know it was worth every mile. Let's see if we can...
All right. So what what a talent. I mean, that is that is some voice. So, um, okay. So for those of you who've been following me for some time, you know that over the past handful of weeks, we've built up a large position in Alibaba, just over $209 basis. Since most of you don't have a 10% plus position in this name, I'm not going to spend a lot of time as you can simply click here to read our past articles or listen to last week's video cast where we lay out our thesis. Um, and, you know, I made a comment, you know, unlike many commentators who hide or go silent when a public position goes against them, we take responsibility and dress it head on. And I think you're going to get a lot of value of how I walk you through how we dealt with this situation this week because it, it wasn't fun. But, um, you know, uh, let, let, let's follow on. I, I put this picture here of me and Tony Robbins, and I, I think I covered it in a previous podcast, but few weeks ago at the, the Stanley Cup game in Tampa, I ran into him, nicest guy. And I and there's a photo bomber who I don't know who this guy is. But anyway, that was kind of funny. And it reminded me of some of the teaching I learned when I was 17 years old. He used to run all these infomercials. For those of you who are a little bit older, you remember this. Uh, and I was working as a golf caddy at that time. And I, you know, I was so, you know, serious about getting successful. I grew up like middle class around a, a tremendous amount of money. So I was always really ambitious. I worked, you know, started washing dishes when I was 10 and then a paper route and then started caddying when I was 12. Um, so um, so one, of the, one of his key teachings was that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions you ask. So on Tuesday morning when the Shanghai Composite was just puking and it was all bad news, um, I I, um, you know, usually in the morning I, I do my TM, which is called Transcendental Meditation. A friend of mine who's uh, the co-CIO at Bridgewater, you know, recommended to me like six, seven years ago. It's pretty popular in the hedge fund community. So I did my 20 minutes of TM and I came out of it like, you know, I was very calm. And I said, you know, I, I, I basically, I made my name in this business profiting from dislocation. You know, whenever there's a period of dislocation, people call me and they ask like, what should I do? You know, blah, blah, blah. Whether it's sector dislocation, stock dislocation, or index dislocation. That, that's just where I thrive. And I looked at this situation and I was like, what, what to do here? I mean, you know, we've been adding, we brought our basis down to 209, but this thing was going to open up, you know, below 190. And, you know, you look at this, it's like, oh my God, down, you know, 29 points. But, you know, in the scheme of things, take the zero off. It's basically a stock that went from, you know, $20.90 to $18. It's not the end of the world. But at the same time, it wasn't fun because you didn't know where the bottom was. So um, so rather than ask the question, uh, why is the Chinese government doing this? Why are they, do you know, this doesn't make any sense. It, just leaving that all aside, I asked, how can I take advantage of this situation? Because there's a huge lot of dislocation. There's a huge amount of panic in the market. Sure, I can just add more stock, but that's, you know, that's just increasing the size of your position and you really don't know how, where the bottom is. How can I, I know what the intrinsic value is, which is why I have confidence. I just don't know where the bottom is. So, um, so, so the opportunity of it was how can I take advantage of it? And um, what we decide, what I saw in the pricing at that moment was put, uh, put options the premium, the implied volatility, the pricing blew so far out of whack. Like people were just clamoring to get their hands on puts. Either, you know, um, you know, unsophisticated people that are like, wow, this might be a good short after it was already down huge. Or more likely people who had big positions that were just panicking for insurance. Panicking for insurance. So, um you know, the, the old saying on Wall Street is is when the ducks are quacking, feed them. And um, you got to give people what they want. So everyone wanted umbrellas uh, after it was already in a downpour. You know, so that was the opportunity. So how do you structure that? And I looked at not only was the implied volatility and the premium of the puts at like historically basically high levels, people would pay any price to get any uh, protection. Um, the calls were absolutely collapsing. So um, everyone wanted to buy the insurance when it was too late and no one wanted to buy the upside calls when the opportunity was at its absolute best. And the time to buy the umbrella is before it's raining. The time to buy the home insurance is before the earthquake and everyone was buying it after. So the only thing you could logically do was sell it to them because that, that's what was in demand. 
And I said, okay, at what price, you know, given the uncertainty and the risk, at what price would I be willing and enthusiastic to own more stock? Was I enthusiastic to watch it go from, you know, another $10 down from, you know, 185 to 170? No, but would I have been like, I can't sit here and not, not take more stock at 170? You bet. So what we did was we sold a ton of put premium at 170 in that mar- open, opening market panic. And we took that money uh, selling them the insurance that they wanted at any price. And we bought uh, a ton of call premium at no additional pocket, uh, cost out of pocket. Um, and we were able to buy a lot more calls than puts. We, we, with the money we sold with puts, we could buy a lot more calls because no one wanted the calls and everyone wanted the puts. And uh, we increased our exposure by 33% to the upside with a lower effective basis, higher notional exposure, uh, and lower risk because it enabled us um, to uh, – so basically we – it enabled us to buy a ton more calls, no money out of pocket. And then we added some more calls on top because they got so cheap in that environment – uh, which increased our notional exposure and lowered our effective basis. And the net effect is that when the stock ultimately returns to our original pre-Tuesday basis, which was 209.14, now it's much lower, uh, we'll, be able to, we'll be nicely profitable at that level versus at break-even. And when it moves through that original basis, we're going to be significantly more profitable on the upside than we would have been with our positioning prior to Tuesday's dislocation. So we took it, you know, what most people viewed as a terrible situation and turned it to you know, um, from macro charts, lips to God's ears, uh, some of the best, so all other panics led to career making rallies is this time different. And that's how I've made my name, you know, going in there when no one wanted energy, when no one wanted banks, uh, and, and doing things like that. I, you know, and, and when things, the key thing, what you want to do when a sector stock or market is absolutely in a panic dislocation type of situation um, is you always have to start with the highest quality. So, you know, during 2009, that meant um, 2008 and 2009, we were buying um, high yield debt. So we were buying up on the capital structure because that, that was crazy. Uh, in this situation, it wasn't anything like that. So we're just buying the highest quality equities. So you're not buying the stocks that are like speculative when, you know, when when all chaos is breaking loose, you're buying best of breed. I mean, if China takes down Alibaba, they basically take down themselves. So that's why you want to be buying Alibaba and some of the biggest and best in that type of environment. And, and that's exactly what we did. So um, so the, the saying here is uh, sell umbrellas and buy rainbows. So we we're selling the umbrellas that everyone wanted. We were buying the rainbows, which was the call options, looking for a brighter future uh, after the rain goes away. And uh, what's even better is, and this is I wrote on Wednesday night, is that when we get the next bounce in BABA, we'll be able to buy in the short puts for a profit and use all the cash that would have been tied up in stock, which we were able to, um, to uh, take off because we have more notional value now, uh, exposure, and uh, put that money on new positions in other stocks. So we're basically, we got use of the cash, we got more exposure to the upside at a lower basis, we financed it for free, and the next day it bounced, but it didn't bounce enough where I wanted to buy in the puts. On Thursday, it had, and we were able to buy in all the puts we sold at 50% of what we sold them for. So we we basically, um, you know, if you sell sold for $3, you were able to buy them back for half of that money, $150. And uh, so we have no exposure where if you get another leg lower that they put that stock to us, we don't have that risk anymore. Now we just have, um, we had um, 33% more notional upside. We actually increased that up to uh, between 40 and 50% more notional upside at a lower basis. So as this thing takes off, uh, we're going to be in a much better situation than we were even last week to, to take advantage of the upside. So, so that's what we call, you know, turning lemons into a lemonade party, basically. Uh, and... Um, you know, this was a level of in the midst of chaos, like a calm surgical execution in the face of these unusual, 
unquantifiable exogenous events, uh, it's no more than a benefit of years of experience in trading through many dislocations. And, you know, if I had not seen 2008 and 2009, I wouldn't have known how to position in March and April of last year when the Fed finally backstopped the corporate credit markets and it was all over. And the market didn't like immediately respond to that, but that was it. That was then, then you knew it was it was all over. Same thing with China government came in on Tuesday and all of a sudden they said, you know, it's a bottom. They they did their plunge version of the plunge protection team, called all their banks, started buying stocks at the bottom, told their populace that you can start buying stocks. And, you know, it, it was off to the races. And as famed trader Jesse Livermore, who made a hundred million dollars in 1930 terms during the Great Depression, one of the greatest traders of all times, inflation adjusted, you know, billions of dollars. He said, only the game can teach you the game. And some of these things you just can't learn any other way than through experience and through listening to something like this, where you learn from other people's experience so you don't have to go through it yourself, which is, um, I'm uh, hoping, very helpful. So, uh, you know, whether this is the bottom, the bottom's in for Baba or not, we don't know. Uh, but we do know we have dramatically more upside with now virtually we've quantified our risk. We, don't, we have no um, unlimited downside. We know exactly what our risk is and it's less than it was last week. So so that, you know, it was a really horrible situation on Tuesday morning that enabled us to turn it into the greatest opportunity, um, you know, potentially in a, you know, in, in a career. We'll, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But um, lowering risk and increasing upside with, with uh, financing it through other people's money in the short term by selling premium and then using that to buy was was pretty exciting when all the dust settled to sit back and say that was a really good use of a, of a really um, turbulent situation. So um, we talked about our segment with Oliver. You can review that at your own leisure. Uh, this was a Indicator of the week I put out called the uh, percentage of S&P 500 stocks above the 50-day moving average. And what I said here, uh, I think was appropriate. While, while the market feels like it's been climbing and many of the stocks under the surface have corrected 15 to 30%. You know, we talked about Cigna. There's a lot, a lot more in the past couple of months. This has created opportunity even when it feels like the indices have froth uh, and it's just knowing where to look. So, uh, you know, the, fair, the Fed is fully accommodative. That's not to say Delta doesn't surge. That's not to say some other gray swan uh, couldn't, couldn't emerge. But, um, you know, this, this shows us at these levels, there's, there's still things to do and there's still places to look once you know where to look. And, and we've tried to cover that in recent weeks and months um, and, and be helpful on that front. Um, the AAII sentiment survey results, retail still a bit bullish, but... Uh, the fear and greed was down to 25. So that's usually a buy point, you know, 20 to 30. That's where you want to be a net buyer and seller. And you want to do it on a discrete stock by stock basis. Some, some of those, like if you had a, if you had an indicator for every stock, some of them would be down here. Those are the things that we like to look at. Uh, but odds favor starting to add some things that have been oversold versus, uh, um, you know, dumping into this level of fear. Uh, the National Association of Active Investment Managers. Let's just see, because I know that switches over the day after we publish the article. They, they publish it once a week. So that's now at 78. Okay, so not much change there. So they, they started to get a little exposure, I guess, after uh, tech earnings and that type of thing. And then this shows the earnings estimates that we said were going to go up. They're starting to go up. Um, Went from 195 to 198.77 on 2021, 213.50 to 217. That's just in a week. So that 225, 230 I've been talking about for the last handful of weeks uh, is now looking much more realistic and likely to play out over the next four to six weeks. Earnings have been fantastic. We don't really need to spend a lot of time on that. Uh, and then as far as economic data that came in this week, um, this is what they were talking about today personal income and personal spending. Um, income remained strong. The spending was high. Chicago PMI beat. Consumer expectations are good. So the consumer is strong here, 81.2 versus 80.0. Um, inflation expectations 
at 4.7%. So we've got, got to just keep an eye on it. The PCE came in a little hot. So people were saying that that's the Fed's indicator. Now you got to worry that if they're going to act too quickly. But if you just listened and watched uh, Jay Powell from 2.30 to 3.30, you could tell he, he's all about employment. Um, barring some spiraling wage inflation after that supply comes back on in September, uh, I don't see him certainly doing anything with rates until uh, early 2023. And tapering, he's really, it seems like, going to try to make that a 2022 event. Certainly not a 2021 event, but uh, we'll know more in Jackson Hole. Um, Consumer confidence was very strong earlier in the week, uh, 129 versus 123. We got a crude draw, good. Uh, Earnings were great. They're returning a ton of capital to shareholders. That's all great. We saw that this week with Exxon and Chevron this morning. Um, GDP missed a bit. 6.5 6.5 versus 8.5. That gives the Fed cover to stay in a bit longer. Uh, continuing claims, this has always been my pet peeve. It, it missed expectations. So um, again, that, um, you know, that, that allows the Fed to stay in longer. But then core CPE prices, PCE prices were a little hot, which he thinks is going to be temporary, but uh, uh, rather transient, which means they won't continue to go up. Uh, we're going to need to see these start to stabilize soon, or then we have to worry about them stepping in if they don't if they don't hit that plateau that he's looking for. Uh, and then other than that, uh, let's see if we saw the rig count. Uh, rig count actually came down. Total rig count came down three rigs. Okay, that's interesting. And two on the oil rig count. So that's good that uh, the EMP companies are showing some Capital discipline, finally, after years and years and years of dumping, uh, burying money in the ground, they're, they're returning capital, they're showing some discipline on drilling new holes, so uh, all of that is great. And with that said, uh, it's a Friday afternoon in the middle of summer, so we're going to keep it short and sweet. Hope you found that helpful this week. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one, and thanks for listening in.